Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 28. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking God for help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law for the next 30 days that any person who prays to anyone divine or human except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and the Persians, and it cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. And he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king, and they said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve, so faithfully rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the lion's den, and not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And he had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children. And lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This, again, is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. So none of you really know me. I am not super great with small talk or formalities, so let's just jump straight into the deep end, shall we? My name is Jeff. I'm a United Methodist pastor. I'm currently on leave, and the following is one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me. Ready? All right, one of you, good. 
So I was a freshman in college, and I was one of those freshmen who didn't really know why they were in college because I was positive that I already knew absolutely everything. And so I walked into my first class. It was an intro to the Bible class. And I sat down next to this guy who seemed a little bit out of place because he was maybe four or five decades older than everybody else in the classroom. And since I was that brand of cocky, overconfident freshman, I remember thinking to myself, why is this guy in an intro to Bible class when he was probably alive when the Bible was happening? Like, I looked at Methuselah's yearbook and saw his picture next to him. (laughs) Kind of harsh, I know, but don't worry. It gets worse. The professor started lecturing about symbolism, and he gave the example of political cartoons. And he said, what if I were to show you a political cartoon of a man with a nice tan and a big white smile and a head shaped like a peanut? Who would that represent? Now, the correct answer, anyone know? Yeah, the correct answer was Jimmy Carter. I wasn't reading a lot of political cartoons during the Carter administration, what with my not being alive and all during that time, so I didn't know that answer. But since I was that brand of overconfident and cocky freshman, not knowing the answer wasn't going to stop me from answering the question. (laughs) So I raised my hand and I confidently said, Professor, that would be Mr. Peanut. You know, the corporate logo from Planters Peanuts? Yeah, that was my answer. So obviously I was wrong, and the older guy next to me started laughing, and he said, actually, that would be President Carter. Now, I could have left this alone. I really should have left this alone. After all, I just mistook a caricature of an American president for a corporate logo. But did I mention that I was that brand of cocky and overconfident freshman? (laughs) So I looked at the guy and I said the following. I said, well, maybe if I were like a thousand years old like you, I would have known the answer to that question. I know, I was there. (laughs) I heard me say that. Now here's the embarrassing part. That guy ended up being the dean auditing the class. (laughs) I know, I was there. I was maybe 15 minutes into my higher education, and I accidentally insulted the dean in front of an entire classroom of people. I am the luckiest man alive because he responded by laughing and introducing himself to me, and I was mortified. But from that moment on, he and I actually became really good friends, and I learned how to be a lot more humble. But here's the other thing that I learned. I learned that we cast people into different roles in our story, don't we? We cast people into different roles in our story. I'm the young go-getter who knows everything there is to know, and that guy is the old and outdated person. I'm the hero, and that person or that group of people, they're the villains. That person over there... That's the person that needs me to save them because I'm the savior in this story. That person is broken and I know how to fix them. And there's absolutely no problem with seeing ourselves or seeing yourself with something to offer to the world. But the problem that we can run into is that sometimes we mislabel people and we get the roles wrong. Like I did when I accidentally tried putting the dean in his place, even though I'd only been in college for all of 15 minutes. 
maybe from time to time, we need to rethink the cast. We need to rethink who we've cast into these different roles in our lives, who the heroes actually are, and maybe second-guess some people that we've labeled as villains or we've labeled in, needs, uh, in need of fixing or saving. Now, with all of that being said, let's take a look at the passage that we just read. It's about a young prophet named Daniel, and Daniel's people had just been taken over by the Babylonian Empire. Now, if you are a massive military superpower or a massive empire in the ancient world, you had a couple of different options when it came to taking over the kingdom next door. But the Babylonians, they had this down to a science, this whole conquering your neighbors thing. So of all of those options that they had, they used this brilliant but also extremely evil tactic called exile. So when they uh, took over a new territory or took over a new kingdom, they would overthrow the king in the most bloody way that they could come up with. But look, that was already a common tactic. That was old news. The Assyrians had been doing this for hundreds of years. The Babylonians, they perfected this by taking a step further, and they dragged the newly conquered people hundreds, even thousands, miles, thousands of miles away from their homeland into another part of the empire. And this left the people completely disoriented, completely demoralized. And there wasn't a lot of fiery anger left to fuel a rebellion, which was important if you were one of these massive military superpowers. It's almost like exile had this way of killing people's souls by dragging them from their homeland. Because remember, in the ancient world, people believed that their god or their gods gave them their homeland, gave them the land they were living on. So exile, it kind of had this implied sting of saying, we're taking you from your homeland. Where's your god now? Now, I bring all of this up because it's really important to communicate just how degraded and demeaned and humiliated Daniel's people have been just by being in Babylon their customs, their homes, their neighborhoods, their temple, where they believed that God actually resided. Everything that gave them their meaning, everything that gave them their identity is gone and it's thousands of miles away. And so what we find throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel and some of his friends, they try to act out in ways that really don't seem to make too much sense to us at first blush. Like they say that they're not, in our first passage this morning, they say that they're not going to eat the meat that's offered to them, even to the point of death. Daniel and his friends were eventually gotten into a lot of trouble by not eating meat. And without any sort of context, I personally and you personally might look at them and say, dude, just eat the meat already. You might actually like the meat. Questionable meat can be great. In fact, in a couple of thousand years, they're going to invent this thing called the North Carolina State Fair. You can get cow meat on a donut. <sighs> it's going to be great. Just eat the meat. Maybe you'll like it. But Daniel, who belongs to this group of people who've had everything taken from them, he'd say, not eating the meat, it's all I've got left. This is the only stand that I can still take. Or in the passage that we just read, he keeps on praying to Yahweh in the direction of Jerusalem. 
To which we might be tempted to say, again, dude, just at least close your window. Don't pray so loudly. Maybe face a different direction, bud. But Daniel would say, it's all I've got left. This is the only stand that I can still take. Or just as another example, if you open up to the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible, you're going to find a bunch of poems and prayers that were written by people like Daniel who were in exile in Babylon. These are brutal. Some of them are even songs about violent revenge against the Babylonians. If you have a little free time this week, make a mental note to read Psalm 137. Absolutely brutal psalm. And we might be tempted to say, lighten up! Play something a little bit more upbeat. You're going to make yourself depressed. But they would say, my rage is all I have left. It's the only stand that I have left to take. Now, you all have been in the middle of a series about speaking truth to power and using your prophetic voices. And this morning in particular, our theme is civil disobedience. And for me, the problem that I run into when I think of topics like this, it's the same problem that I ran into when I was a freshman in college. It's the problem of the fact that we have this this tendency to cast people in different roles in our lives. And we assign parts. Like, I'm the hero, they're the villain, they're broken, I can fix them. And we do this also when we read different passages in the Bible, don't we? Like, when we read about Jesus standing up to the Pharisees, we never think to ourselves, I don't know, those Pharisees sound like they have a pretty good point. (laughs) I'm definitely the Pharisee in this story. No, we cast ourselves as the heroes who are standing up to the religious establishment. Or how many of you have ever read the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and came away thinking, who is this Satan fellow? I love his unique perspective on life. I'd like to subscribe to his newsletter. Good, none of you. (laughs) No, we cast ourselves in the good guys in that story, right? The good guys who stand up to temptation, the heroes, the saviors, the ones who stand up to injustice. And so when we read a book like Daniel, we might be tempted to think to ourselves, I, like Daniel, am the good guy. And I need to find a way to speak truth to power. I need to find a way to engage in civil disobedience. I need to find a way to use my prophetic voice. But I think it's important to ask the question, have I cast the roles right? Am I actually Daniel? Or dare I say it, am I a little bit more like Babylon? Am I the one actually engaging in civil disobedience and speaking truth to power? Or am I the one shaking my head saying, I don't know, those chants and songs, they sound a little too angry. These people just need to lighten up. Why don't they just change their customs, change their culture to fit ours? It's no big deal. And all the while, the people that we're talking about, like Daniel, would have said exactly what Daniel would have said, which is our rage is all we have left. And our customs are all that we have left. What if we, what if I, what if you are a little bit more Babylon than we are Daniel? Now look, there's something that you need to know about me, which is that I don't like guilting people. My last name is Babetis, it's Polish, and that means that I have a Catholic grandmother from Eastern Europe. So believe me, I've had enough guilt in my life. (laughs) 
I don't think that guilt accomplishes very much. So I'm not trying to guilt you or make you feel bad by saying that maybe we need to rethink the cast list and realize we're a little bit more Babylon than we are Daniel. Not trying to guilt you. I'm trying to offer some encouragement here because it means that we have an incredible opportunity. Because at the end of this morning's passage, we find that the people of Israel are one small step closer to freedom because the king over them at the time, the one with the power, listened to Daniel, listened to the one who had the plight. So think about it. How do we get more people speaking truth to power? Maybe it's by realizing we're the ones in power and it's time to listen to the people who are speaking truth to us. Or how do we get more people to engage in civil disobedience or get more people in power to take civil disobedience more seriously? Maybe it's time to just listen. Maybe it's time to listen to the lyrics of those angry songs and those chants or listen to the words and the rituals of the people that we might be tempted to say need to change or adapt. Listening, look, I get it. It's nowhere near as heroic looking or grandiose or sexy as picketing or marching, but it might be, listening might be the single most revolutionary and prophetic act that we can engage in in our world right now. Just listening. When I was growing up, I knew a priest that would take kids from Northern Ireland where there was a war at the time in the 90s between people who called themselves Catholics and people who called themselves Protestants. And he'd fly all of these kids out to a neutral territory in America to actually meet each other and talk to each other. And one day he was sitting with one of the Catholic kids and the kids said, Father, you lied to us. You said that there were going to be Protestant kids here. And the priest said, well, that boy over there, that boy's a Protestant. And the kid said, that boy can't be a Protestant. He doesn't have horns. I know. The kid had such a strict cast in his mind of who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. So much so that he was taught that the bad Protestant kids had horns. And this priest was teaching kids to rethink those roles and to listen to one another. And if that recasting and listening led to just a handful of fewer car bombs in Belfast, I'd call that a revolution, wouldn't you? Speaking truth to power means recognizing our power and listening to someone speak truth to it. And engaging in civil disobedience means listening to someone that we want to write off as just regular disobedient. And using our prophetic voice means listening to people who are using their prophetic voices. So may we all have the strength to listen. Amen? Amen. Amen.